From the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond, you're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. I'd like to welcome you back to episode two of Trauma ICU Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. I hope that uh, everyone is doing their very best to stay safe and healthy during these trying times. Uh, I'd like to start the show today by giving a shout out to all of the brave and fantastic folks out there that continue to be on the front lines, providing meals, security, and care to those of us in need. I'd especially also like to thank all of my wonderful colleagues, partners, and friends at Harbor UCLA Medical Center in Torrance, California, for continuing to show up each and every day to work and continuing to provide world-class care to our patients, their families, and loved ones. And for our friends and colleagues on the East Coast and other epicenters of the coronavirus, please know that you guys are always in my thoughts and prayers, and please do let us know what we can be doing to further support your efforts. Now, in keeping with our airway and breathing theme for these first few episodes, today I want to spend a little bit of time discussing rapid sequence intubation, or RSI, and contrast it with what's come to be known or labeled as a protected airway or protected intubation. In doing so, I'd like to share with you some of the findings and tips that we've learned during the course of routine clinical care and in the process of running multidisciplinary in situ simulations to assess the response of our hospital-wide emergency airway response team, which is staffed by friends in the ER and anesthesia. So by the end of rounds today, you should be able to, number one, describe the steps Uh, involved in performing rapid sequence intubation, also referred to as drug-assisted intubation. And the second objective of today's rounds is to really get you to pause, think, and prepare before rushing into a patient's room to secure a definitive airway, particularly in this day and age. As many of you have heard me say around the workplace, there are no emergencies during a pandemic. And I know this is counterintuitive and somewhat uncomfortable and at odds with our natural instinct to rush in and help those in need. But I implore you to please protect and look out, not just for yourselves, but for your colleagues and loved ones at home. You know, we're going through a time right now where there really feels like there's a complete lack of control and there's a lot of fear of the unknown. And this is both uncomfortable and downright frightening. With that said, there still are things in our immediate locus of control. And one of those things is ensuring that we're protecting ourselves through appropriate use of PPE, specifically meticulous donning and doffing with coaching and frequent hand washing. What I'm trying to say is let's continue to treat our patients as we always have. Just take the time to protect yourselves and others before doing so. And just before we get into RSI, I do want to let you know that in future episodes, we'll go into the stepwise approach involved in both basic and advanced airway management and assessment. These episodes will cover everything from recognition of a threatened airway to one of my favorite topics or procedures, surgical cricothyroidotomy. So getting to our first objective, what is rapid sequence intubation? So RSI is a method of achieving rapid control of the airway while minimizing the risk of regurgitation and aspiration of gastric content. So this is performed in a setting where we have no idea what someone's MPO status is, and we're just going to assume that they have a full stomach. Essentially, uh, intravenous induction of anesthesia takes place with or without the application of cricoid pressure, and that's swiftly followed by the placement of an ET tube or endotracheal tube. Because we employ induction agents in combination with rapid-acting neuromuscular blockade, some folks refer to RSI as drug-assisted intubation. Now, is it always necessary to provide meds? Well, the simple answer is no, 
And in most instances, it's really going to depend on a variety of factors, including provider experience, patient factors, as well as environmental or situational factors. But getting back to RSI, again, the logic here is we want to minimize the duration of time between the patient's induced loss of consciousness and the inflation of the ET tube cuff in the trachea, which by definition is a definitive airway. Some of you may have noticed that I said with or without cricoid pressure, aka Selix maneuver, because the utility of cricoid pressure is something that's been brought into question over the last several years. And this is more apparent in the EM literature versus the anesthesia literature. Uh, there's been systematic reviews published on the topic. And in 2019, there was an RCT in JAMA surgery called the IRIS trial in which the study authors failed to demonstrate the non-inferiority of a sham procedure versus cricoid pressure in preventing pulmonary aspiration. Of note, the grade of view was actually worse and intubation time was prolonged in patients getting cricoid pressure, which kind of suggests that it may increase the difficulty of tracheal intubation. So in preparation for this episode, I had an opportunity to review several organizational guidelines that have been developed to help healthcare providers out, uh, specifically with regards to innovating critically ill patients with suspected COVID-19. And these guidelines can be found in the show notes, and they come from organizations including ANZIX, the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, as well as consensus statements from the Safe Airway Society. So when it comes to rapid sequence intubation, uh, there are several steps as well as a sequence that has to be undertaken. And depending on where you look, uh, these can kind of get a bit convoluted and confusing. For the purposes of our talk today, we're going to break down RSI into five key steps. And what are those steps? Number one, preparation. And if you're going to take anything away from today's episode, I think the key here is that preparation is both vital and essential. As you can imagine, with an airway emergency response team, they may be called to any part of the hospital at any given time. And so it's really important that we have a standardized way of approaching the airway in these situations. And this includes things like having a huddle, as well as performing an S-bar where we go through the situation background assessment as well as recommendations. The second step is pre-oxygenation and positioning, followed by number three, medication administration. The fourth step involves insertion of the endotracheal tube with inflation of the cuff. And number five involves verification of the endotracheal tube. So let's go through these five steps and discuss how protected innovation might vary from standard RSI. And just to be clear, these suggestions that we're making here apply not just to confirm COVID patients, but in any situation in which a patient is being ruled out for COVID as well. As recommendations regarding appropriate PPE you seem to be changing by the hour, I would refer you to your hospital or healthcare system's guidelines for the appropriate use of PPE. So again, preparation, the first step of rapid sequence intubation, is the most important step. And there are several things that we want to be assessing and checking in terms of preparation. These things include preparation of the staff. We want to make sure that we have role assignment, and this is usually done in the form of a huddle. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with team steps, this is something that we do with every trauma that comes into our hospital. And it's also something that we do whenever a situation changes. 
So if the emergency airway response team is activated, uh, as the team members arrive to the patient's bedside, it's so important for us during the preparatory phases of things to perform a huddle and get an S-bar, which I mentioned earlier. In addition to preparing the team, we also need to prepare the patient, and this includes devices such as monitoring as well as optimal positioning, which we'll talk about in the next step. We also want to prepare our equipment, including the oxygen supply, airway equipment, and drugs, as well as prepare for difficulty. Again, we always want to go in with a backup plan, and just remember that just a few minutes of preparation will save you hours, days, or a lifetime of regrets. So getting back to team members and preparation of the team, it's really important during the huddle that we identify who's going to be in the room. And as often as possible, we want to minimize the number of healthcare personnel in the room, which ideally is a negative pressure isolation room. This may not always be the case, uh, but certainly we want to minimize people in the room, but there should always be help outside of the room. For us, typically, we'll go in with uh, an attending physician together with one or two RNs and the RCP or respiratory care provider. Outside of the room, it usually helps to have another healthcare provider who's donned in PPE and ready to go. And you definitely want to make sure that there is an assigned runner. Now, when it comes to medications and equipment, the key thing here is, again, have your backup plan and go in with that, whether that's an LMA or a bougie. For most of these innovations, or all of them, whenever possible, this should be done using the video laryngoscope. And this may be the GlideScope. You'll notice I say GlideScope, not Glide-a-scope. There is no A in the term GlideScope. Or uh, the CMAC. So it really depends on what you have, and it's so important, especially these days, that we're checking these at every shift to make sure that they're plugged in and have all the components, including a functioning light, monitor, and blades. For the GlideScope, it also helps to have the stylet that's specifically designed to help you kind of navigate that anterior larynx as well. In terms of medications, we do want to make sure that we have the patient's weight and ensure that the patient has IV access. Rapid sequence intubation, again, involves an induction agent, an appropriate neuromuscular blockade agent. Usually, this involves the use of automidate at a dose of 0.3 milligrams per kg intravenously and succinylcholine 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. Unless clinician preference or clinical circumstance dictates, though, high dose i.e. 1 to 1.2 milligrams per kg of ideal body weight of rocuronium uh, as the paralytic uh, may be preferred. The reason for this is that with higher doses of rocuronium, we know that this allows for a rapid onset. And the great thing about this is that it's not going to wear off after six or seven minutes like succinylcholine will. Uh, we had an intubation performed just about a week ago where due to some issues with the airway, it took a little bit longer than normal, and the patient started to wake up and cough, and then we had to redose the patient. And so I like this strategy of using rocuronium or vecuronium as the neuromuscular blockade of choice. So while we're on the topic of meds, uh, the only other thing that I would add is while we're thinking about induction and paralytic agents, this is now the time that you also want to mix up some norepinephrine and have that ready to drip in just in case your patient becomes uh, hypotensive uh, on induction and following intubation. It'll also help to have some balanced crystalloid solution if that's not in shortage at your hospital ready to bolus in. 
and just have your drips ready. So sedation and analgesia, most commonly propofol and fentanyl, ready to go in the room so that you're not having to constantly go back and forth and in and out of the room. Remember, communication, especially if you're using a capper or papper, can be difficult. It's difficult to hear. I know that some units, they're setting up sort of walkie-talkies or baby monitors from within and outside of the room. So again, just make sure that you're well prepared. And the other important piece of equipment to make sure that you have with you is the waveform capnography line as well as monitoring module. Uh, as soon as we get that airway secured, we want to hook patients up directly to the ventilator. And so anytime we can prevent connection and disconnection of bags, lines, and tubes, the better off and safer will be to decrease the risk of exposure to aerosolized particles. Now, some people like mnemonics, others don't. I'm in the first camp. When it comes to the equipment that you'll need uh, outside of the glide scope and medications, uh, I always use the mnemonic statics. That's just the mnemonic I was taught. Static stands for suction, which is probably next to the ET tube, one of the most important things, because there's nothing worse than actually having a, a relatively good view, but just having it obstructed by snot or blood and not being able to remove it. Number two is tape. Airways and typically several types and sizes of NP tubes or OP tubes, that's nasopharyngeal or oropharyngeal uh, airways. Uh, the one thing I will say here is that as much as possible, I would avoid uh, sticking in an airway adjunct, specifically an oral airway that might result in the patient gagging and coughing. Tubes, typically several sizes, introducer stylet. C is a circuit, and so this is going to include anything that will help you ventilate and oxygenate the patient from the AMBU or air mask bag unit together with an oxygen source and ventilator. And then finally, we have the scope. Make sure that it's functioning as well as syringe to blow up the ET tube cuff. Now, pre-oxygenation and positioning is something that's also going to have some differences uh, when you're performing a protected airway intubation. In most instances, we are going to pre-oxygenate patients, typically with 100% oxygen, and typically for a minimum of three minutes of normal tidal breathing. If patients are awake and cooperative, we can have them take in really large vital capacity breaths over a minute. And the longer you pre-oxygenate, the better. The, the whole principle behind pre-oxygenating a patient is that it's going to extend the safe apnea time. Uh, essentially, when we pre-oxygenate, we are performing nitrogen washout. We know that most of the atmospheric air that we breathe, 79% of it is composed of nitrogen. And so by inhaling high concentrations of oxygen, we're going to wash the nitrogen out of the lungs. And this is going to result essentially in a larger alveolar oxygen reservoir. Although I didn't mention in preparation, during the preparation side of things, especially when it comes to the patient, most of the time these patients are going to be already receiving supplemental oxygen. And so the pre-oxygenation side of things can be happening while you're going through your huddle, doing your introductions, and getting all the rest of your equipment applied. And this may be either a non-rebreather at 15 liters or if you have the high-ox oxygen mask, uh, that can be used as well. We don't have that here, but the high-ox oxygen mask uh, essentially is a, a closed system that delivers oxygen uh, with the addition of a respiratory filter, and then the exhaled breath is filtered. So that's one potential option. Along the uh, topic of pre-oxygenation, uh, in general, we're going to try to avoid BVM in patients with suspected COVID. The whole idea here is that that is an aerosol generating procedure. 
we're certainly going to want to have an appropriately sized face mask and the BVM with the HEPA viral filter in line and a PEEP valve. But in general, if it's possible, we want to avoid positive pressure ventilation. In cases where patients do rapidly desaturate, and they do do that uh, upon induction, uh, it certainly helps to have a second person so that you can at least do a two-handed technique to ensure that there's a nice seal of the mask against the patient's face. In general, we want to avoid using BiPAP or CPAP as well as high-flow nasal cannula. And the one thing I will say about high-flow nasal cannula, outside of potentially being aerosol generating, uh, is that it's very difficult to get uh, an actual seal when you're trying to bag valve mask a patient. So that typically has to be removed. Uh, I haven't seen a single patient yet not receive apneic oxygenation. Uh, There are recommendations in terms of the flow rate at which this should be delivered typically less than six liters. I haven't looked into the evidence as to whether or not six, 10 versus higher uh, flow rates results in more aerosolization, but certainly consider apneic oxygenation. And remember, in the process of applying these oxygen therapies, you'll want to have a mask on the patient as well, in addition to having your PPE to reduce the potential viral load in the case that the patient sneezes, coughs, or uh, is breathing all over you. In terms of positioning, there's really not too much to that. We want to make sure that patients are in a nice sniffing position, uh, provided that there's not a concern with their cervical spine. Uh, Just the other day, we had a patient come in as a found down, fall, potential head trauma on blood thinners, who, after being cleared from a trauma standpoint on further inquiry, endorsed symptoms of fever, cough, and respiratory symptoms at home. Eventually, the patient, while still in the trauma bay, developed acute hypoxemic respiratory failure requiring intubation. Um, Pretty uncommon scenario, I hope, but something that uh, we'll probably see more and more in terms of mechanism. Patients really kind of just doing unwell, dehydrated, and being found down. So following preparation, pre-oxygenation, and positioning, we're going to move on to medication administration and ET tube insertion and cuff inflation. Uh, Provided that the meds have already been drawn up, you're ready to go, and typically we'll start with Atomidate, followed by either succinylcholine or rocuronium. During this time, what we've started to do, or at least what I've been suggesting, I don't know if people have been doing this or not, but just taking the clear plastic drape uh, that usually covers our ventilators and placing that over the patient's face and upper torso. Uh, Whether or not this is going to be helpful in terms of decreasing aerosol generation or inhalation of aerosolized particles in the case that a patient is coughing, Uh, I'm not too sure, but it certainly seems to add another barrier or physical barrier to potentially decrease that uh, viral transmission. Once the patient is paralyzed, this is when we're going to perform our intubation. And so if you're using succinylcholine, you're going to look for the fasciculations and really try to wait until the patient is completely relaxed because the last thing you want to do now is stick that glidescope in the back of their throat and have them gag or cough. Once the ET tube is in, we're going to inflate the cuff, and then we're going to hook the ET tube up directly to the ventilator circuit with our inline capnography. At this point, in terms of confirming placement, uh, there's a couple of options here. I think most importantly, we have end tidal CO2 
being quantitatively measured and displayed on our monitors. Here, the big thing is we're going to try to avoid as much as possible auscultation. You know, bringing in a, a stethoscope uh, into the room is something that's just going to act as another potential fulmite and spread of disease. And so get that x-ray order placed. And usually before we leave the room and even before we get there, you know, a lot of these patients are going to require vasopressors, drips, as well as frequent labs and blood draws. So once that uh, ET tube is secured with your anchor fast device or tape, we're going to drop an OG tube, get the Foley in. If we need to send a tracheal aspirate or do a bronch, do it at this time as well. But if the patient needs central lines or an arterial line, now is the time to do it and then call for your portable chest x-ray to make sure that the tube lines and everything are where they're supposed to be. So I think most of us have been double gloving. So once you take off your first set of gloves, uh, this might be a good time or opportunity to take care of your airway equipment. So I would contact or figure out what your local ID infection control prevention folks are recommending. Here we're using the Purple Top Santa Cloths and Cavi Wipes and ensuring that there's a wet time of at least three minutes. So the next really important step here is going to be appropriate doffing with coaching using a standardized checklist. This is something that we're doing for both of our donning and doffing procedures is having a buddy or coach take us through it step by step to make sure that we're not contaminating ourselves, others, or the environment. One thing that has been so beneficial after every one of these intubations is to have a debrief. During a debrief, it's sort of the opposite of a huddle. For the huddle, we're kind of preparing and trying to figure things out and assigning roles. With a debrief, really what we're doing is we are figuring out what went well, what didn't go so well, and what lessons we've learned and what can we implement for the next time. And during the processes of debriefs, whether it's in the setting of a simulation or an actual clinical care, there's always one or two lessons that need to be learned and passed around and shared with colleagues. For example, following our first uh, emergency airway response team simulation, what we found was that anesthesia uh, ended up bringing some or all of the airway equipment, including the PAPRs and PPE, up to the code. We found that that's a little bit cumbersome and it certainly took a, quite a while for the team to arrive. And so what we've instituted or implemented is an actual airway cart that has everything that we need on it, not just equipment and supplies, but the PPE as well. So that concludes our episode today. Uh, again, I want to thank you for joining me on ICU Rounds. Please make sure that you visit our website and check out the show notes. We'll make sure that our airway checklist is uploaded there. And you can also find some references and links to the guidelines that were used to uh, discuss some of the material in today's show. Also, make sure you visit me on iTunes, subscribe, and I would appreciate five-star ratings. If you have any negative feedback, please feel free to contact me directly and let me know what I can be doing differently. Also, if there's anything that you want to talk about or there are certain episodes that you want to hear, make sure that you get on the email list and send us your suggestions. In the meantime, please do stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll talk to you soon.